We are grateful that you are joining here to celebrate the coming of Jesus who came 2,000 years ago to rescue us from our sins, to save us, to make us his own, to adopt us. Tonight we get to reflect on just what it means that he came at just the right time in just the right place in history. Turn your Bibles, if you have one, to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read the first few verses of Matthew, and I doubt you've heard many Christmas messages that include the genealogy. So we're going to look, though, at the genealogy of Jesus because this is a backstory like any good backstory, and it tells us some really crucial things about the coming of Jesus. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, read verses 1 through 18. This is God's holy inspired word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Ruth, Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abiah, and Abiah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. You may be wondering, what in the world does all this genealogy have to do with Christmas? And the answer is really everything. The genealogy has a lot of bearing on Christmas, and it's important for you and I. It's important because it's the backstory of Jesus, and backstories are important. They help us understand the main character better. If you've ever seen Batman, you know that his backstory is critical. It's critical to know that his parents were gunned down in front of him, and he vowed to take vengeance on criminals, and it helps explain his motivation and a little bit of his dark side, too. If you understand Luke Skywalker's backstory, my childhood hero, then it will help you understand how he relates to the characters in the first three Star Wars, or as I like to think, the only Star Wars movies. Whatever your opinion is of Star Wars, backstories are important. They're important. They reveal how a character overcomes diversity. They reveal about their past and how they became who they are today. 
But I doubt any of us really ever spend a lot of time in the very beginning of Matthew looking at this backstory, this true life account. There's a lot of names in there, but don't get distracted. The main character is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Word became flesh. But before Matthew starts, it's not a throwaway. He, before he starts telling of the immaculate conception of Jesus in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, he tells us these things for a reason because his backstory is important. And as you're reflecting, as we reflect on the backstory that we're going to hear of all the different characters today, tonight, I want you to think about your own backstory. How did you get to the place you are today? What's your backstory? How... How have you gotten to the point in life that you're at? What are the different things that have happened to you? And then we're going to think, how does Jesus' backstory affect our backstory? You see, the more, most important thing that Matthew wanted us to see all throughout this account, it's really this main idea that God redeems us. God redeems us, and he triumphantly saves us by his grace. That's what we see in the whole of Jesus' backstory is that God redeems us, triumphantly saves us by his grace. There's some essential truths here. Matthew, he started this account with some headings. He gives us a heading. This is a genealogy. This whole book of Matthew is a genealogy about Jesus Christ. And he is two titles he gives to him. You look up at your screen. I think we have them. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And at first you think, okay, that's great. The son of David, right? David was the king. Abraham, the father of the faith. Well, Matthew has something else in mind and pointing these things out to us. He's the son of David. Yes, he's a long-awaited, long-prophesied Messiah. He's the chosen king who'd redeem God's people and forever reign as the king. That's who Jesus is. He is the son of David. He's the one who, through the prophet Nathan, prophesied to David. God says, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom singular, and he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will build the throne of his kingdom forever, clearly not pointing to any normal human. No human lives forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And then right away, Matthew lets the reader know that Jesus' backstory is talking about a king, and it's also talking about a, a promised son, and he talks about how he's the son of Abraham, God had promised that he would bless Abraham, that he would, he would make him the father of many nations. In Genesis 12, he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you will curse. Now listen to this line. He says, all the peoples, not just Jews, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That didn't happen right away, though. God went on to promise that he would make Abraham, and, or at that time Abram, his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand and the, and, the, and the seashore. And you might think, well, Abraham's the hero and David's the hero. Well, that's not what Matthew has in mind. This backstory is revealing something else. You see, along the way, if you were a good Jew, you would know that Abram, who later God called Abraham, he didn't fully trust God. The father of the faith failed in faith. It's important to see that. And I think Matthew wants to draw our attention to that because he gives so many examples about failures People who are sinful, shame, all in this backstory. This backstory really is an account of sin, failures, weakness, shame, hardship, and grief. 
He didn't believe what God was going to say, so he thought, you know what, I'm, I'm a little afraid. And so he, he wimps out when another king sees his wife, and he claims that his wife's his sister. Now, guys, that's a really big deal. If you're here, in case you're, in case you're wondering, if you're not yet married, that's a betrayal. He betrayed his wife, and God had to step in and rescue her. God had to say no, no to the king. That's, that, that woman's married. So Abraham, he still hadn't learned lessons of faith that he needed to learn. He, he had been told by God that he was going to have the father, be a father of many nations, and yet he was 100 years old, and, and Sarah was 90, and so he was, he was getting up there, and so he thought, you know, I'm going to take things in my own hands. And so he was self-sufficient, self-righteously looking at how he could provide for himself, and he took his wife's servant. Even after that, though God was faithful, in Genesis 22, God still promised Abram, even after he had not trusted him fully, and he says, he says now through your offspring, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And his Jewish readers would have gotten that. That's a, that's a singular word. That means offspring, one, through one offspring. And so Matthew wants to have his readers see this backstory is about how Jesus has been brought about through this imperfect father of the faith, and yet God's going to bring healing to the nations through him. After that, you think, well, maybe it gets a little better. Well, no, it doesn't, because Isaac, his son, he repeats all the same mistakes that his father did, and then, and then towards the end of his life, Isaac's supposed to. God tells him, hey, you know what? Your older son's going to serve the younger. So the intention was for Isaac to bless the younger son, and, and, and Isaac says, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, then his son, Jacob the deceiver, tricks his dad. And so we have a tale of really people who did not faithfully obey God. We have a tale, the, the fathers of the, the Jewish faith, the fathers of the faith not really fully obeying God. They were flawed, they were deceivers, they were liars, they were manipulators. They went to go their own way. There was a big split and rift in that family. Then notice down in, in Matthew 1.3, the verse we read to begin with, it says something about who Jesus came from. And there's something striking there because four times in this passage, Jesus' his genealogy mentions women. Now, that might not be shocking for us today, but for a Jew in the first century reading this, you would have been shocked that a, a woman, much less four women, were mentioned here, much less women who were, most of them were foreigners, and they had scandalous pasts. He says, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Now, something to know about Tamar is that Judah's son, he had, he had, he had a couple sons, Ur and Onan, and, and Ur married Judah. But Ur was so bad... Or was so evil that it says that he was so wicked that God killed him. There's not a lot of people in the Bible that God directly kills because they were so wicked. And so Tamar, she's a widow, and by law, Onan, he's supposed to marry Tamar. And so the dad says, okay, Onan's supposed to marry Tamar, but he disobeys, and then he is so wicked. It's the second time you see it, and God says, he's so wicked, God killed Onan. And so poor Tamar, right? I mean, come on. She's been widowed twice. And then, by Jewish law, the father is supposed to take care of her and then provide the other child. And yet, he had another son, Shealtiel, and, and, and he was supposed to provide, or I believe it's that, sorry about that, Shelah was the son, and he was supposed to provide Shelah for Tamar, but he didn't want to because he was afraid. And so in Genesis 38, Judah says to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live like a widow. Not how that was supposed to go. Judah wasn't upstanding. He says, live like a widow, but not in my house, in your father's house. So he cast her out. 
until my son Sheila grows up, for he thought, mm-mm, man, he's going to die. He may die too, just like his brothers. And so Tamar went to live in her father's house. He didn't have any intention of giving her to Sheila. He didn't have any intention of her providing for her. She was abandoned and left alone. This woman who had already endured two wicked men who were killed by God. And so later, Judah's wife dies, and he, he goes out, and he sees this mystery woman. It happens to be Tamar in disguise. She has disguised herself as a woman of the evening. Judah goes and sees this mystery woman, finds her alluring, does not know it's his daughter-in-law. This is scandal. He sees her. He promises to pay for her. He doesn't have any money, so he gives his staff. He gives his cord. He gives his signet ring until somebody should pay. And so she hangs on to that, but then she disappears. He doesn't know who it is still. And three months later, they find out that Tamar's pregnant. This is not the kind of backstory you expect with Jesus, is it? So Tamar's pregnant. Judah finds out he's enraged. He's upset. Genesis 38 tells the story. He says, he says bring her out and have her, have her burned to death. Not the most merciful response. As she's being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. And she said, see if you can recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah had no choice. He owned up to his sin. And yet it says that he left her all alone for the rest of her life. She was abandoned. She was mistreated. What does this backstory tell us? It tells us that God does not abandon those who everyone else abandons. God doesn't mistreat. God doesn't leave people who've experienced hardship and are lonely and outcast. Well, down in verse 5, it continues. It says, Salmon by Boaz, by Rahab. Now, if you know the story of Rahab in the Old Testament, Rahab was a notorious prostitute. Not the one that you think that the Messiah would list as his genealogy of his, of his earthly father. She was a harlot. She chose her life of sin, and yet, when she was confronted with spies from Israel, she said, you know what, I'm going to trust that your God is more powerful than me, and so God used her to rescue and redeem. God didn't look at her sins as irredeemable. He didn't look at her with a scarlet letter. He didn't look at Rahab as if her past was irredeemable. No, the Messiah came through Tamar and Rahab. But not only that, there's Ruth. And you think, well, that's a good story, right? Naomi and Ruth. But you forget that Ruth was actually a Moabite woman whose Naomi's son should not have married in the first place. And Ruth became a widow. And the Moabites were commanded, I mean, the Israelites were commanded not to ever marry a Moabite. And so she's this generally hated woman who is an immigrant. And back in that day, they, there was no love for Moabite immigrants. And yet God works through those who've been disenfranchised. He redeems, he saves, he rescues. Then you look down, he says, David was the father of Solomon. Oh, that's a good story. David's son, King Solomon. Well, it says, by the wife of who? By the wife of Uriah. And in case you don't know that story, David sinfully saw across the terrace, saw a woman he wanted who was married to another man. He connived and tricked and deceived, took her without her consent, and then had her husband murdered. 
God redeems murderers. God redeems conniving, manipulative sinners. And then in verses 6 through 11, if you know the story of the Old Testament, in verses 6 through 11, all of these kings listed, they were kings who never were good enough. They never met up expectations. They, they were as dashed expectations, terrible, wicked kings. They led God's people badly all the way until the fact that God had to punish them and take them into exile. But in exile, God is working to redeem and save by his grace. Even through continuous disobedience, God is working to redeem and save by his grace. And he was working all throughout this period. And then in verses 13 and 15, something interesting to note about verses 13 and 15 in your Bibles is that those people were never mentioned in the Old Testament anywhere. They were completely obscure. God works through the obscure. Something else to note about that time period of those verses 13 and 15, that was the period when it seemed like God stopped speaking to the people of Israel. And he stopped speaking for 400 years. Now, to get some perspective, our country has been around for a little less than 250 years. Imagine never hearing from God for 400 years. In the midst of silence and obscurity, God was working to save and redeem by his grace. All the way up until the point, says Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, the chosen one. God brings about his chosen one through the sin, the failures, the weakness, the emptiness, the loneliness. He, he brings about his Christ, his Messiah, through periods when people think he's not speaking. God's, God's abandoned us. God's lost, left us. God doesn't hear us. He's not speaking. He doesn't care. People who were carried into exile, and yet all through that, the main thing this backstory is showing us is that God redeems us and triumphantly saves us by his grace. Because that's how Jesus works. He, he doesn't abandon the abandoned. He doesn't, he doesn't cast off the sinners. No, he puts them in his family tree. And he redeems them and saves them by his grace. And who is this us that I'm talking about? Who is this us that I think Matthew wants us to get? Well, that's the same us that, that John referred to in his gospel in John 1. He says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let me say that again. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you are here today, tonight, and, and you have sin in your background, if you have failure and lack of faith, if, if you have committed atrocities, or if you're guilty of horrible sins, or if you've been sinned against in horrible ways, or if people have treated you wickedly, or abandoned you, or made you feel alone, disenfranchised, if you feel like you're an outcast, if you feel like God is never speaking, here's the hope. To all who believed in his name, he gave the right, the right to become children of God. Matthew's backstory shows us God redeems and saves us by his grace. We see this backstory that God is at work as well in the kinds of every kind of person, the lives of every kind of person. And you might think, yeah, that's fine. I can't relate. Well, you know, that's not true. Every kind of person is mentioned here. People who have been sinned against, people who have committed sins, people who have been lonely and desolate, people who have been poor and rich. Every kind of person, God works in the lives of every kind of person. It's meant to give each and every one of us fresh faith, fresh hope, because you know what? I continue to lack faith. I continue to fail. I continue to sin. I don't know about you, but I assume 
If you're human, you continue to fail. You continue to lack faith. You continue to stumble. You might even have wicked things you've done in your past you want anybody to know about. I, I have things in my past. I don't want people to know about all my sins. I don't feel worthy. And yet we see that God works in the lives and through the lives of every kind of person to redeem them and graciously save them by his grace. The hurt, the abandoned, the abused, the harlots, those condemned, those who've lost, those who are destitute, those who feel like God is silent. What's your backstory? Where are you at right now? How can you identify with the people in this story? You ever feel like you don't belong? You know, the, the funny thing about that is most people at some point don't feel like they belong. You ever feel like you've been hurt or abused or abandoned? Have you been marginalized or outcast? Have you lost much? Do you feel hopeless? This account of Matthew is a show that there is hope for everyone. For all who don't belong, are hurt, abused, and abandoned. There's hope for who, all who society marginalizes, the outcast, the immigrant, those thrown away. God's grace triumphs to save sinners. And that's you and me. There's hope there. All throughout the failures, the sins, the shame, God works and redeems the worst of kings through the shame of exile, disgrace, and silence. When, when you're wondering, are you even there still, God? He's at work. The backstory shows us God's grace is greater than sin. Not only that, it shows us that his grace is greater than the worst shame. All of us carry some kind of shame. Shame of our own sin. Some of us carry the shame of the sins committed against us. God sent Jesus to redeem and triumphantly save us from our shame by his grace. This backstory, it tells us something about Jesus. The lives of these people show us that God is able to redeem us and save us people through the most impossible situations, throughout the most impossible times. All throughout history, God is sovereignly. That means God is ruling and reigning over time in history to bring about his purposes to redeem us and triumphantly save us by his grace. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're feeling, no matter what you're thinking, this helps us understand the character of Jesus. And that Jesus isn't embarrassed or ashamed to call, his, to call sinners children by his grace. Even the obscure how about you? Do you feel obscure, unworthy, unlovely? God's grace triumphs when we feel unworthy. We feel he's silent. That's what we celebrate tonight and tomorrow and every Christmas. And here's the thing. I was asking you at the beginning, what's, what's your backstory? What, what is your backstory? Think about it for a moment. Can you identify in any way with any of those different things I've shared? If so, that's good because there's an answer, and it's the one this story is all about. It's about Jesus. As we put our hope, our faith in him, we ask him to forgive us. We ask him to redeem us. We, we ask him to rescue us out of our mire, out of our background, out of our backstory. Then you know what happens? God saves us and he makes Jesus' backstory ours and gives us the credit for all that Jesus has done. As we close tonight, you may not have done this before at a Christmas Eve service, but we are going to remember what Jesus came to do through communion. 
good enough. The ushers start to pass out the elements. Now, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we'd invite you to join with us irrespective of whether you're in church or not. If your hope's in him. Now, if you have not yet placed your faith in him, let that pass. Nobody's going to look at you funny. But we do this tonight to put our hope afresh in this fact that Jesus not only came as a baby, he lived a perfect life to do what? To redeem us from all of our imperfections, all of our sin, all of our failures, all of our shame. Hear that. Jesus came to redeem your backstory. And he earned the right, Scripture tells us, to be called the Son of God. Then he died for all our failure, weakness, and sin. He carried our shame. He paid the price for all the ways we've wandered and been unfaithful and unworthy. He died to reconcile all of us who are far off from God, to make us one with the Father, to bring us into the most loving relationship we could ever want. You will never be alone if you trusted in the grace of the Lord Jesus. He was resurrected to demonstrate his power over sin and death and to show his sacrifice was acceptable and then he came to rescue us from our sins his grace has triumphed here his grace has triumphed over all of your sin your failure your shame your aloneness and if you trust in him and his life for us trust in his death and his resurrection by his grace no matter what your backstory has been he makes his story your story and god credits you with all the goodness that jesus has ever done That's astounding. That's what we celebrate about Jesus coming. That's why it's really good news. He makes us, listen to this, he makes us a part of his genealogy. He adopts all those who trust in him as his sons and daughters. And tonight, we place our faith in Jesus, remembering what Matthew wrote about towards the end of his gospel. In Matthew 26, 26, the night that Jesus was betrayed, when you take your bread out, your little cup, and by the way, it's gluten-free in case you're concerned. <laughs> it says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave, thanks to the, he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. His body in place of ours. His life in place of our life. All that we have done placed on him. All that he has done for us that we take, we consume. When we eat this, we're placing our faith. The fact that all of Jesus' life is for us, that's what gives us life. And he took a cup, and when he gave him thanks, he said to them, drink it, all of you. This is the blood of my new covenant, the blood that washes away all of our sins, that, that cleanses us from unrighteousness, that, that makes us brand new so we no longer need to be ashamed. He says, it's poured out for many, which includes you and me, for the forgiveness of sins. Whatever the backstory, let's take this bread. Remember that Jesus is our life. He's our hope for life his body for us. Let's eat it together. Now as we get ready to drink this juice, let's drink it remembering his blood is what our confidence is that we can be completely clean because his blood washes us clean from all of our sins. It removes shame so we no longer are ashamed before him, but now we come before the throne of grace, finding mercy and grace in time of need. Let's drink this together. Now let's stand, if the band would go ahead and come up. We're going to close with a song, a way to rejoice, and let this be your prayer, your song as well. 
The song is, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And that is what we want to proclaim in faith as we close. Let's stand and sing together.